Welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical, environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanka and Scott Parker. Let's commit now to be in this fight for the long haul. We must remain unified today and tomorrow and the day after and for the years and decades to come. It will not be easy. There will be cost, but it's a price we have to pay. So in this hour, let the words of Pope John Paul burn as brightly today. Never, ever give up hope. Never doubt. Never tire. Never become discouraged. Be not afraid. A dictator bent on rebuilding an empire will never erase a people's love for liberty. Brutality will never grind down their will to be free. Ukraine will never be a victory for Russia, for free people refused to live in a world of hopelessness and darkness. We will have a different future, a brighter future, rooted in democracy and principle, hope and light, of decency and dignity, of freedom and possibilities. For God's sake, this man cannot remain in power. Welcome to the Silky Smooth Sounds of the Green and Red podcast. I'm your co-host, Scott Parkin, in Berkeley, California. And as always, I'm joined by... Bob Bazanko in Texas. I'm really looking forward to uh, spending th- this uh, show talking about Will Smith and Chris Rock. That's what we're yeah. doing, right? Yeah, I think so. The slap. The slap heard around the world, right? Yeah, because there hasn't been enough coverage of it. So I think, I think, I think we need to give them our hot take on it. <laughs> yeah, and we have the hottest take. 212 centigrade, or no, Fahrenheit, whatever. Fahrenheit. Sorry, folks. Okay. Maybe a little bit of an April Fool's joke as we are uh, recording on April 1st. Uh, we're going to be talking about one of our favorite topics, which we'd like to say is a comedy, even though we refer to it sometimes in joking terms. But we're going to be actually talking about uh, NATO liberalism and uh, Ukraine and lots of other uh, foreign policy uh, you know, adventures around the world. And so kind of kicking off, we uh, just played you a clip from our president, Joe Biden. Uh, and the kind of key thing about that clip is it was the, the sort of speech that kind of blew up in the news about a week ago, um, where Biden talked about regime change in Russia. He talked about removing Putin from power. And, you know, the White House is scrambled that it was a gaffe as soon as he did it. But um, we actually want to talk about how uh, Democrats, liberal Democrats like Biden, are every bit as hawkish as Republicans. When you think about George W. Bush, when you think about Donald Trump, you think about hawks. And people seem to not have that impression sometimes, or at least some people, about the Bill Clintons and Barack Obama and Joe Bidens of the world. And so we're going to actually talk a little bit about that today. Yeah, NATO liberals. That's a phrase that uh, actually has become quite popular. We've gotten a lot of feedback from people uh, telling us how much they like it. And I've seen other people refer it and, uh, to it and give us credit. So uh, we cannot copyright it. Or, I don't know, can we copyright it? We'll have to see, maybe we can copyright it. But anyway, today we're gonna to talk about NATO liberals. What's striking about what Biden said is, it's a gaffe because he said it out loud, not because he thought it. You know, Because that actually is US policy. And as Scott just said, um, the Democratic Party uh, and liberals in particular have been interventionist 
throughout their entire history. And that's what we want to talk about because liberals themselves kind of, I think, generally portray themselves as being more dovish or less interventionist. But the reality is liberalism itself, the very nature of liberalism, um, depends on having these kind of broad foreign connections. And the proto we're going to give you a history lesson in it because that's kind of what we do here. We like to give you background and kind of give you like a larger context uh, of why things are rather than just tell you something that happened today. I mean, everybody's talking about Ukraine on a daily basis. And and uh, there are some people who know way more about it, you know, and, and we want to kind of give you the, the larger historical context because I think that's important. So so based on this premise that NATO liberals really represent the, the mainstream of U.S. foreign policy, what we want to do is kind of tell you a little bit about the history of what NATO liberals are and why the Democratic Party has been particularly interventionist and why what we're seeing today out of Biden, the aggressive posturing before the invasion, how NATO really has been uh, one of the uh, main issues in the entire uh, Ukraine-Russia crisis and Biden's alleged slip of the tongue the other day uh, saying, you know, Putin has to go uh, are really kind of linchpins of what a democratic liberal interventionist <clears throat> foreign policy would be. Um, and we've done a lot of shows on liberalism and just to kind of very briefly um, make the point again, liberalism is, is a political economy. It's a doctrine that was developed in the early, uh, especially in the U.S. with regard to the U.S. in the early 20th century, Best associated probably with Woodrow Wilson, although, you know, others as well. Uh, liberalism has a couple uh, uh, main components. One is, is a global foreign policy based on free trade. So it's an economic policy which claims that the United States should have access to markets and investment and resources and labor all over the world. It's the so-called open door. So that's liberalism. It also involves reform and not out of uh, necessarily any kind of moralistic kick but reform in order to create societies which are more developed, economically more modern, that term will be used later, so that they can then become um, commercial partners with the United States. And so the protocol, prototypical liberals would be um, Woodrow Wilson, who intervened in World War I in order to protect, uh, he said to make the world safer democracy. Well, democracy meant commercial liberty, it meant free markets. It, uh, it meant we have to stop the Germans from blowing up these ships which are full of gold and they're being sunk. And then uh, the other would be Franklin Roosevelt, who through things like the good neighbor policy, uh, reciprocal trade uh, and, and tariffs, acts, uh, and especially intervention for World War II, really kind of cemented liberalism and, and to some extent Keynesianism as the, the dominant policy. Now, with regard to NATO, uh, NATO uh, is established in 1949, but the background to that I think is kind of interesting. Because NATO was established, it's, it's a military alliance of, at the time, I believe, 12 countries. Uh, and it was designed specifically in the North Atlantic, along with the United States, to contain the Soviet Union. That was the, the idea behind it. After World War II, remember, the Soviet Union had kind of left occupation forces as it pushed the Nazi army back. And so it had uh, created friendly governments, satellite governments, whatever you want to call them, in, in Eastern Europe. At the same time, inside the United States, um, the post-war economy uh, was kind of sketchy. And I think uh, if you want to talk about NATO, you, you have to start before the 1949 establishment of NATO. And um, something that I always found really intriguing uh, comes out of a book by the late Frank Kofsky. Uh, and he talked about the war scares. And in 1947 and 1948, into 1949, 
uh, there were two major war scares. One was in Czechoslovakia because there was a coup which overthrew kind of a reformist socialist government and put in charge of more Moscow-friendly government. And then, of course, there was the Berlin blockade uh, where uh, Stalin uh, blocked uh, uh, access to West Berlin uh, in order, because the United States was kind of combining the three Westerns. On the, it doesn't really matter. At any rate, this is occurring at the same time that inside the United States, there's an economic downturn because of demobilization. And what Kofsky shows, and I think it's particularly interesting, and this was occurring in the aircraft industry. Uh, in 1947, sales for aircraft were $856 million, and in 1946, there were $730 million. That's actually a decrease because they're not building military aircraft anymore. Um, at that point, a lot of people from the aircraft industry went to their favorite senators, especially Stuart Symington from Missouri, and Missouri, of course, is where McDonnell Douglas and, and, and Boeing were located. And they said, you know, we need to we need more military sales. And thus, you saw the government really crank up these war scares about Czechoslovakia and Berlin. And as a result, the next military budgets had significant increases. So whereas sales were in the seven, eight hundred million range, 1948, there were um, one point one eight billion dollars in sales. Uh, in 1947, 11 of the 16 manufacturers in the aerospace industry operated at a loss. In 1948, 13 of the 16 made money, right? What that did was show that they could use military spending and, and security as an economic policy. And so in 1949, uh, you saw the Western states get together and create NATO. Uh, a year earlier, um, some of the European nations, including the British and French, had signed something called a Brussels Treaty promising uh, mutual aid in the event of an attack. NATO expanded that to 12 countries pledging to support each other in the event of an attack, um, but also committed, and this is a part that you never hear, it's, it's a military alliance, right? But it also was committed to develop free institutions through economic collaboration. And on the very same day NATO was approved in Congress, Truman proposed a $1 billion military aid program for Europe. And so, um, as one of uh, Truman's aides said, uh, one of the main purposes of NATO and other military alliances was, quote, to build up our own military industry. So this is clearly a program now of, uh, of, of uh, an economic stimulus program for defense, right? And um, one senator, while they were debating it, said the Atlantic Pact is a logical extension of the principle of the Monroe Doctrine. So when we talk about NATO liberals, and we're going to talk about Democratic presidents from Truman up to the present, it's not just about NATO and it's not just about Europe. It's kind of NATO liberals is kind of an ideology. It's a, it's a phrase, an umbrella phrase to talk about Democrats who are interventionist, who are hegemonic. And the Monroe Doctrine is a great example of that, because what we're seeing today uh, in Ukraine, which is very far away from uh, Latin America, is the United States essentially claiming uh, a specific interest there. And so that's how NATO got started. And NATO has both a military purpose to contain the Soviet Union, which isn't really hard to do because the Soviet Union, as it showed in the Berlin blockade, was not going to be aggressive. As soon as the United States began the air, the, uh, the airlift, uh, Stalin never did anything aggressive and he removed the blockade in, uh, you know, in 1949, a year later. So essentially, the, the purpose of NATO you know, was already established and the United States had essentially succeeded in containing the USSR by 1949. 
uh, from that point on, the Cold War revolves around proxies and all over the world, really. Um, another piece to that occurs with the National Security Act. And I think we've talked about that, so I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. National Security Act in 1947, it's kind of a bureaucratic act. It created the Pentagon, it created the NSC, it created the CIA. Uh, the idea behind it is the United States is now in an era of total war, especially with atomic weapons. Uh, you could have war, you know, literally in an hour. Uh, so you could no longer, you know, be passive and then, you know, wait for a crisis to occur and then, you know, mobilize for a war like you did in, at the beginning of World War One and, and, and World War Two. So now you have uh, a period of constant preparation for war, war preparedness, and you have what becomes known as the national security state, where things like democracy and citizenship take a back need, uh, a back seat to the interest of, of what they call national security uh, to preserve interest all over the globe and especially economic interest, right? Now, the national security state, as critics at the time pointed out, would probably be problematic. And in fact, it has undermined our constitutional principles. And we're well aware of that, right? With the, the Patriot Act and Homeland Security and all that kind of stuff. COINTELLIGENCE. Surveillance, surveillance state. Surveillance state, right? That's been going on uh, constantly. And the state always finds rationale for it. So yeah, 911 is an excuse and COVID is an excuse, but it's like uh, play Kusa, like streetcars. They're always gonna find reasons to expand uh, surveillance. Um, so it, it undermined constitutional principles, deprived people of their civil rights, led to a militarization of society, um, which we see now, you know, whether it be in popular culture, you know, like in movies and TV shows or just in everyday life where, you know, high schools are full of like, you know, junior ROTC programs and it's just a militarized society in so many ways. And it will justify repression in the name of defense, whether that be abroad at places like Abu Ghraib or in the kind of black sites in Chicago where the Chicago police brutalized, especially African-Americans, right? Um, people on the left criticize the national security state, which isn't terribly surprising, but it was actually also criticized really harshly from the right uh, because- The real libertarian right. From the real libertarian right in, in a lot of ways, yeah. And the idea there was that these people said, what we're going to do, these guys have like kind of an older traditional idea of what the United States and American society should be. And they believed in this kind of, you know, kind of uh, out, outdated by 1947, 48 view of American society and the, the rights of citizens. And, you know, it's kind of like Mayberry RFD in my head, you know. Uh, but now what you have is uh, because of atomic bombs and jet aircraft, uh, you have to be prepared, prepared to mobilize in an instant. Uh, to produce uh, an industry for wars, which Roosevelt found out in 1939 and 40, <clears throat> to finance wars and the fight wars. So uh, Admiral Ernest King, who I believe was chief of naval operations at the time, said wars are no longer fought solely by the armed forces, directly or indirectly. The whole citizenry and the entire resources of the nation go to war. That's NATO liberals. That's what NATO liberals believe, right? And if you look at their defense budgets, you know, we already have the highest defense budget ever. And what did Biden just ask for another, what, 31 billion or something like that on top of that? There, there's what they there's what the, they asked for. And then they gave them like 30 billion on top of that. Yeah. So we're over 800 billion now. That's just the official. And I would suggest you all go and listen to um, a couple of the shows we've done recently in our Ukraine series. And you should really check out the Ukraine playlist. But Bill Hartong, 
who's like the guy on uh, on uh, military spending, military budgets, and weapon systems, and then Pratap Chatterjee, who's the guy on uh, corporations, uh, had talked about extensively kind of how important this war has been uh, for, especially for American defense companies, Raytheon, General Dynamics, and, and all the rest. Uh, to put a, you know, not, not to get too carried away in it, but I'll oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, just as a, a fun fact, I always like to say is that the contracts that Lee, that Lockheed Martin has with the Pentagon is actually one and a half times the size of the state department's annual budget. Just like, just kind of think about that, the, the yeah. ratio, that, that large amount of money spent and was it just on that company. Either Hartung or Prothop said that the amount they spent on F-35s alone is bigger than the entire CDC budget. Hard time. Hard time. So the point here, and this is really important, is that military spending, which is couched in the in the uh, in the context of, of protecting you against, you know, forces and threats. It's it's not there really aren't any external forces or threats. Canada and Mexico aren't, you know, going to attack the United States. Cuba. Sure. They're worried about Cuba. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, the biggest embargo of all time. You know, the the Soviet Union and now Russia does have ICBMs, but <clears throat> even though it has more nuclear warheads, it's it's nowhere near as technologically sophisticated. And, and as Clinton Fernandez, another sh- must-see sh- uh, episode, must, must listen, must-see, pointed out, the United States is the only country that can fight outside its hemisphere. The United States has a two-ocean war uh, and defense policy. Nobody else does. Uh, Russia is a, is a power in Asia and China is a power. I'm sorry, in Europe, mostly in Europe and Russia's power and China is a power in Asia. The U.S. is in both. Also, interesting thing to think about is that the, the sort of like propaganda is that tensions in the South China Sea between China and the U.S. It's because the, the U.S. is, you know, been has lots of military force right there up on China's border, right up on in the in Chinese China's backyard. Same with yeah. same with the Ukraine, right, yeah. and Russia, and like you know, we've I think we've kind of we've talked about that quite a bit on the show. Um, the other thing I want to just kind of throw out there too is just like this notion of the permanent wartime economy. We talk about these budgets, we talk about these companies making lots of money. With William Hartung, we talked about the F thirty five caucus. Billions of dollars are spent on developing the F thirty five, and you know that is a, a boon for like certain congressional districts, but. You know, this sort of state has existed, the permanent wartime economy state, the national security state has existed since World War II, the end of World War II. Uh, and basically, it's what keeps the U.S. economy going. And and it's not just Republicans, is it? It's, I mean, the no, liberals who would like to attack Republicans, this is not, right? Yeah. It, and I mean, I, I believe there's actually a, a boondoggle in Vermont where, you know, Bernie Sanders advocates for military industry in his state. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And that's the point of this, why we call them NATO liberals, because we have this mistaken idea that somehow, you know, uh, well, I just had a debate the other day on on JFK, which I hopefully will come out soon. We'll have it up, you know, where um, the other person was talking about, you know, Richard Nixon is a cold warrior and JFK isn't. It's like, no, come on, they're almost indistinguishable. And Nixon actually reached out to Beijing and Moscow. Um, I don't want to spend too much time. I spent a lot of time on Truman, but I think it's important to kind of get the roots of this and understand Mary Truman's a Democrat, too. He's this liberal Democrat. He's like one of the, on the Mount Rushmore of liberal Democrats, right? Uh, but when the National Security Act was passed, the harshest attacks came from um, actually Robert Taft, who was, and we talked about this before, nicknamed Mr. Republican. And he and other conservatives and libertarians talked about the Prussianization of American life, Prussia being the you know, military 
know, stayed in the, in the late um, uh, 19th and early 20th centuries. And Taft said that um, the National Security Act uh, created a dilemma because uh, it would be easy now to become imperialist or ready to take a provocative stand on every controversial issue or attack every country in the world. Taft said, our fingers will be in every pie. Our military forces will work with our commercial forces to obtain as much of the world trade as we can lay our hands on. We will occupy all the strategic strong points in the world and try to maintain force so preponderant that none shall dare attack us. Potential power over other nations, Mr. Republican says, however benevolent in its purposes, leads inevitably to imperialism. Okay, that is the critique, and that is the that's the context of NATO now. And the in the aftermath of that, you have, and we've spoken about this a lot. NSC sixty eight comes in nineteen fifty, which is really important too, because that creates another rationale for a permanent wartime economy. It creates this idea that the Soviet Union, this evil slave, satanic, demonic state, is bent on world destruction, and so the United States has to convert uh, its economy to a permanent wartime and expanded wartime footing raise taxes if it needs to be prepared to uh, uh, mobilize and convert to military production at, at any point. So by 1950, and then when the Korean War breaks out, uh, actually people in Truman's uh, administration are really kind of psyched about it. I mean, they've already used the Cold War to, uh, I, I think something like three fifths of the federal budget is, is military is spent on the military uh, in the aftermath of, of World War II. Uh, so it offers NSC 68 a powerful statement about ideology, but it's also a policy about the American economic strategy uh, in, in the Cold War. It's a way to attack the dollar gap. It's a way to get money into the hands of people in Europe and Asia so that they can purchase American goods. Right. And then when the uh, Korean War breaks out, it's uh, uh, one of Dean Acheson's aides, who's Secretary of State, one of Dean Acheson's aides said, um, we were sweating over it meaning like, how are we gonna increase defense spending? Uh, so we were sweating over it. And then with regard to NSS 68, uh, thank God Korea came along. So these are liberals, Dean Acheson. If you were gonna look at like prototypical Cold Warriors, Dean Acheson, Harry Truman, John Foster Dulles, who's a Republican, John Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson, Stuart Symington, Hubert Humphrey, the happy warrior, Henry Jackson from Washington, uh, the Senator from, uh, that's where Boeing is, right? Washington, right? The center from Boeing. So yeah. all these guys are these these guys are all Democrats. So by 1950, 1951, clearly then NATO liberals dominate foreign policy. It's interventionist. It's looking for markets. It wants to use military spending as a stimulus for the U.S. economy. You know, we've said this many times. It's okay for the government to spend vast amounts of money on the military, federal money on the military, because that's national security. If you spend vast amounts of money on roads and bridges and healthcare and education, then that would be socialism, right? You can't do that, right? So this becomes a, a massive economic spending program. And so, and it's really bipartisan. And if you look at Eisenhower uh, and Dulles, I mean, Eisenhower actually, I mean, was rhetorical, but he made two really beautiful speeches uh, calling into question this, you know, uh, military industrial society. Uh, in 1953, after Stalin had died, he made a speech called uh, uh, A Cross of Iron. That's where the famous quote comes for every gun that is fired. You know, it's, it represents a loss. You could be building, 
you know, schools and health and hospitals and stuff like that. And then, of course, on his way out, he gave the uh, the speech warning about the military industrial complex. Eisenhower did meddle. He overthrew Arbenz. He overthrew Mossadegh, um, sent troops into Lebanon. Uh, on the other hand, in 1956 at Suez, he stood up to Britain and France and forced them to stand down because he understood that attacking the Middle East would create massive animosity uh, against the United States. Uh, but, you know, as he left office, he had plans in place. Uh, you know, Lumumba was assassinated on his watch in his final days. Uh, he had plans in place to uh, overthrow Castro, which Kennedy put into action. So I don't want to take that too far. Uh, but the point is, clearly, Eisenhower was not more interventionist than uh, Truman. Well, he ended the Korean War, too. So um, th there's clearly, uh, it it's clearly... Um, already an established idea, this, you know, what we call NATO liberals, you can call it military Keynesianism, you call it the military industrial complex, you can call it using the military as an economic stimulus program, you can call it Ray, you can call it Ray J, you know, but you doesn't have to call me Johnston. At any rate, <laughs> um, and that leads to another one of the prototypical Cold Wars of that era, a guy we've talked about many times before. Uh, we love him a lot. He's our, uh, our favorite uh, uh, Wastrel president, our, our rounder president, John Fitzgerald Kennedy. And so I think uh, I've talked a lot. So let's Scott, uh, you can you can uh, give us give us the lowdown on on uh, John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Yeah. Talking about JFK. I mean, we've, we've actually had two recent shows on this. Bob just did a debate on this, which will hopefully be posting uh, soon. But, you know, it's around this idea of, of John F. Kennedy as the as the Cold Warrior. And, you know, just to kind of go back before January 20th, 1961, when, when Kennedy was on the, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, he was like very much like embraced these Cold War politics. He was very much about being interventionist, about America being strong. And so he carries that into his 1960 political campaign against Nixon. Uh, he actually embarrasses Nixon uh, during the debate around the missile gap about how the U.S. needs to have, you know, more missiles, even though it was like greatly weighted towards the U.S. over the Soviet Union. One, with 20,000 to 1,600. Yeah, yeah. 20,000 to 1,600 was the missile gap and, and Kennedy. Yeah. So there actually was a missile gap. It's just what? Kennedy was trying to reverse what it actually was. Contrary to what Oliver Stone and John Newman and Jefferson Morley and people like that say, uh, Kennedy also was very much a hawk on Vietnam. We've actually talked about that quite a bit, so I'm not going to go into that too much, but like just, just a, a sort of top line to that is that Kennedy, it, the number of advisors went up to 16,000 on Kennedy's watch. Um, and so he was clearly escalating the war, you know, at the time of his assassination. Really important thing to kind of, contrary to what Hollywood screenwriters and directors tell us, um, he, he very much was like, you know, not going to let the U.S. pull out of Vietnam without a victory. He, he may have handed it off to the South Vietnamese if he thought a victory was going to happen, but he was not going to let their let the communists, let Ho Chi Minh, let North Vietnam and their uh, you know their their benefactors or whatever you want to call them, Soviets and probably and the Chinese uh, win in that. So kind of important thing to to kind of flag. Another another thing to talk about is JFK in Europe. It, it, this this part kind of writes itself with as much as we've talked about it. But uh, you know, it's there's also been arguments that Kennedy wanted to pull out of the Cold War wanted to end the Cold War, ease tensions with the Russians, but there's actually no evidence of that. And Kennedy himself was this interventionist who, you know, was very much having an um, aggressive stance. 
on uh, the Soviets in Europe. Uh, you know, they maintained six American divisions in Germany uh, during this period. Um, Kennedy's national security policy in Europe was, you know, aggressive and based on military strength. Um, and then the, the other important thing to kind of mention is the uh, multilateral nuclear force where Kennedy wanted to integrate NATO forces onto like things like nuclear submarines and ships, et cetera, including German personnel, which was actually a very touchy subject for allies in Europe and, and for the Soviets. Uh, so also a very important thing to kind of note is that he was aggressively pushing for, this, for, for, these, for these policies, right? It wasn't, um, he, he was an interventionist. He was, you know, as much of a Cold War hawk as Truman uh, before him and Johnson and Carter, who we're going to talk about also after him. Um, and, the, and the other important episode that I just want to talk about is the Cuban Missile Crisis, um, which is, you know, Kennedy aggressively did a blockade of Cuba to keep Russian ships out. Important thing to sort of note, right? This is like an interventionist move. This is like international waters. This is Cuban waters. And, you know, Kennedy is, um, he's being aggressive there. It's, there's no dove, there's no dove politics going on. Um, he's, he's very much interested in, you know, asserting U.S. force into that. And then there's a whole lot of other stories that we could talk about, about how all these like secret um, messages to Castro where he wanted peace while he was also sending CIA assets to try and assassinate Castro at the same time. And so, you know, we could also go into that. I'm not going to go into that too much. Um, You want to add anything on Kennedy? Not really. I think, uh, let me blur myself. There's a three-part article I did about this on a green and red media page, but and, and, you know, kind of like, uh, let me make it more clear because, you know, I was kind of cryptic. Um, NATO is an alliance, right? The North Atlantic Treaty Alliance uh, organization with 12 countries in it. It's it's American lad. And, you know, I just like, you know, so when we say NATO, the, head, NATO's the, not, the military head of NATO always has to be an American, correct? Yeah. Well, hey, the secretary general. Yeah, I think the military commanders, but the secretary general is. It doesn't have yeah, to be. That's what I meant. But when when we say NATO, I mean, NATO does, you know, NATO's not going to go against U.S. wishes, is the point. The U.S. spends most of the money, contributes a great deal of the, the equipment and the troops. NATO now has 30 countries in it. So, um, you know, we've talked a lot about, you know, the, the expansion of NATO, which is why we're talking about NATO liberals right now, because, um, you know, lost, I think, in, in the and the legitimate horror over Putin and, and the Russians is there's a backstory to this that's really important. And that's kind of why we're talking about this. Um, so much today. But, you know, just like NATO is it's like the Bretton Woods system, like the World Bank and the IMF. These are global and transnational institutions, but they are pieces of American hegemony. They're part of that American hegemonic project. The idea after World War II is that a huge patch of the world, a patch of the world that's already industrialized and has vast amounts of resources, Eastern Europe, is under the, the control of, of the Soviet Union. And so the Cold War isn't about like freedom or any of that BS. Yes, doesn't care about freedom in Greece where they're slaughtering people. It certainly doesn't care about freedom in Iran where they unleash the, the Shah or in uh, Guatemala where they facilitate a, a genocide. I could go on and on and on and on. Uh, it's about getting access to, to investment and materials and resources and markets and things like that. NATO is the militarized wing of that. The UN is kind of the political wing of that. No point in talking about that right now, but that's important to understand too. Even though we're talking about these things, you know, uh, so when we talk about Kennedy and the multilateral force, which did not come to fruition, 
terrified the world. Essentially, people are like ex-Nazis were going to have, you know, their fingers on nuclear buttons, right? That was kind of the, Tom Lehrer was a great uh, uh, satirical uh, artist at the time, wrote a great song called the MLF Lullaby. Um, and, uh, and you know, you know, you can understand why Khrushchev was, you know, uh, appalled at this and terrified of this, right? And uh, Khrushchev is kind of lovable and cuddly compared to Putin, right? But um, the idea of being encircled by enemy forces, I think, is an important one. And NATO represents the U.S., so I think that that, that that's important, too. Uh, we could go on and on about it. Do you want to say anything more about JFK? Because, you know, we... Yeah, I had actually a quote that I pulled. Oh, sure, sure, sure. This thing have, just, this. But, uh, but uh, let me just, like, encourage all of you to go back. We have a, an interview with Noam Chomsky. Scott and I talked about Kennedy. I've written about it. We'll have the debate up soon. So please go back and check that yeah, this, stuff out. This quote from this great historian said, JFK's national security policies from his time in the Senate until the end of his life were based on traditional concepts of power, containment, and nuclear superiority. Even as he agreed to a limited test ban, which we actually didn't talk about, he was always sure to maintain vast American superiority and flex military strength if needed. Professor Robert Bazinko, folks. I, I thought it was Colco or Williams or Lefebvre, one of those guys. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, but uh, Kennedy was the the idea that Kennedy was somehow a, a closet hawk who was a dove who was going to beat all the swords in the plowshares is utter fantasy. Yeah, yeah. And just moving into the the Johnson era, uh, also another another uh, Cold War hawk. Um, you know, Johnson is most known for the escalation of the war in Vietnam. Yeah, um, hundreds of thousands, if not. I don't know. In the end, I don't actually know how many the peak what the peak number of U.S. troops in Vietnam was. Between 525 and 540, there were, yeah. you know, when he took over, there were 16,000. In 1964, there were 80,000. So between 64 and 68, it goes from 80,000 to around 540, which is a, what, a five, six-fold increase, right? If I'm doing yep. the math, right? Six yep. times eight, yep. yep. So huge increase, yeah. And, I mean, Vietnam consumed LBJ, um, he did find time to intervene in the Dominican Republic. The U.S. alliance with Israel really, I think, was uh, matured under LBJ. During the Six-Day War, he sent vast, immense uh, supplies there. The U.S. had been, you know, kind of trying to maintain some, not even handedness, but kind of, you know, connected to the Arab world. But in 67, it, it, it threw in with Israel. And, and you know... Um, with regard to the Soviet Union, I mean, he met Kosygin, uh, he talked to Khrushchev, there weren't any, there was no equivalent to like the Cuban Missile Crisis, but um, I mean, the, the, the Soviet Union and, and China were using the Vietnam War clearly to, to, to uh, promote their own interests, especially in the third world. So we're, we're, we could spend a lot of time here, but I think like, um, you know, LBJ is kind of a, a, an adjunct to JFK um, and um, Johnson is the, you know, after uh, Lyndon Johnson, um, you have uh, what, uh, 10 years, eight years, yeah, of Republican president. You have two terms of, well, one and a half terms of Richard Nixon, who opened relations with Beijing and Moscow, something the Democrats probably never would have done. And then uh, Gerald Ford, right? Uh, and then Jimmy Carter takes over and we've done a lot of stuff on him already too. It's, it's important thing to know with Nixon and, and Ford is that one of the the other 
constants during that period is that Kissinger was National Security Advisor and Secretary of State. So the foreign policy of Nixon and Ford kind of was yes. continuous. Important thing to note there. Um, Just to be yeah, clear, yeah. too, we are not in any way absolving Richard Nixon of vast war crimes, right, or anything like that. We're just pointing out the, the continuity and the bipartisan nature of of this. They, they, NATO liberals are kind of NATO politicians, NATO imperialists, right? We We're are focusing no, on Democrats, yeah. We are no more pro-Nixon than we are pro-Putin, just for folks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, I think that the point is that I think liberals especially really, you know, think that there's this massive difference between Democrats and Republicans. And, you know, on some issues, clearly, you know, especially social issues, abortion rights or LGBT issues and well, not so much labor anymore, even really. Uh, but, you know, um, on on issues of like intervention and things like NATO and military budgets and all that kind of stuff. I mean, with with exceptions, you know, Ron Paul, uh, Dennis Kucinich, uh, you know, um, there's real unanimity there. Uh, you know, even today, the squad has become I mean, they become pretty bellicose against Russia, which is easy to do. And, you know, again, we don't like Putin or Nixon or Reagan or Trump. Uh, but we're just pointing out that, uh, you know, Truman and Kennedy and Johnson and Clinton and Obama or, and Carter are pretty much all the same. So but I'm sorry. Yeah, absolutely. Talking, speaking of Carter, yeah. uh, you know, we, we did a whole two-part show on Carter last year, and Bob has a brilliant article on it on Flick the Comfortable, if you want to check that out. Um, highly recommend. But just to kind of touch on Carter, you know, Carter uh, is part of his foreign policy, part of his NATO liberal interventionist Cold War hawk policy. Uh, he didn't put a peacenik into the position of Secretary of State. He actually, excuse me, of National Security Advisor. Uh, he put Brzezinski in charge of foreign policy, who basically had these militant, hawkish, um, and ultimately consequential policies that he put into place, particularly when the Soviets in, uh, made an intervention into Afghanistan in 1979. Uh, Brzezinski took a hard line on Soviet involvement in Afghanistan, which removed uh, the Amin government in favor of the more reformist uh, Carmel faction. And, you know, this was called out at the time by George Kennan and the editorial page of the, of the Wall Street Journal, comparing uh, Moscow's relation with Kabul to the American role in Guatemala. And like, what's the ultimate consequence of U.S. intervention support of the Mujahideen in, in Afghanistan is blowback. Uh, and so it leads to the creation of the Taliban, it leads to the creation of Al-Qaeda, it's actually where Osama bin Laden cuts his teeth. We actually also did a show on the Taliban and Al-Qaeda in 9-11. Another thing for folks to check out. This is a great reference episode that we're doing today, by the way, folks. We've done some damn good stuff, man. We are. This is a good podcast. I'm going to have to start listening to it. Yeah, I know. Right? Just Instead of just talking, we got to listen to. Um, but the you know Islamic fundamentalists throughout the, the, the Middle East poured into Pakistan um, to fight against the Soviet the, you know, the godless Soviet-backed government in Kabul. Uh, and, you know, Brzezinski and Carter were actually responsible for funding Mujahideen groups. Um, and there's a video that we showed in one of the other episodes. Maybe we showed it in two different episodes of Brzezinski, basically, like, telling Afghan freedom fighters, quote-unquote, that, that God is on their side and that they would defeat the Carmel government and the Soviets. Um, that's... And then, that's I'm sorry. I just say one thing, because that, that's really important, because 
you know, in the last two months, and I think we were really kind of in the in the avant-garde of this, we were talking about um, the role NATO has played in this current crisis, like two months ago. We were talking about Kennan and Matlock, <clears throat> even Kissinger, Burr, and Perry, and all these guys talking about, like, these immense warnings uh, about NATO. And, uh, you know, the New York Times, was it last Sunday, had that long, long piece on Putin? Uh, it's it's not a short read, but it, it, it's worth it because the great lady can't come out and like kind of in any way say Putin has legitimate grievances. But if you read it, I mean, Putin was talking about NATO and NATO expansion from 1999 onward. It is a constant theme in there. You can't read that. And the point here is that when uh, uh, after the fact, Brzezinski bragged that he was baiting the Soviet Union into going into Afghanistan which I actually don't believe. Uh, liberals love that, right? Oh my God, what a brilliant guy. He baited them and they went in and they got they had their own version of Vietnam. Now, when we say uh, NATO expansion uh, was one of the major reasons that Putin uh, was in a position to take on the Ukraine, I, the, the attack itself was not militarily provoked. There's no justification for it. But the backstory is kind of the same as Brzezinski's, yet Brzezinski is a liberal hero Whereas today, if you talk about that too much, you're a Putin apologist and it's kind of the same thing. So Carter, you know, in that regard is he is a NATO liberal. You know, he's def he was increasing defense spending. There's actually quite a segue in between him and Reagan. Yeah, and I think I think that's important to know is that once again, on the kind of bipartisan continuity, the bipartisan consensus on this is that, you know, Carter and Brzezinski start funding the rebels against Carmel and the and the and the Soviets. And Reagan continues it uh, and and increases it and does everything he can to support um, those you know rebels fighting the the government there. Carter sent also sent the first aid package to a group uh, opposed to a new government in Nicaragua, who would become the Contras. The Contras. Uh, out, out in the Car Carter was one of the midwives of the Contras, as well as the uh, the uh, Mujahideen who became Taliban and Al Qaeda. Great yet, guy. He's a saint. He's a fucking saint. You know, but, I mean, yeah, I love the guy, what he's done. But as president, he's he's a NATO liberal. He's a war criminal, like like all the rest. Yeah. Like all the rest. I mean, I think that's important. He goes and builds houses for the homeless, but um, yeah. it doesn't it doesn't like wipe away, you know, the the U.S. foreign policy in the late 70s. Yeah. You are listening to the silky smooth sounds of the Green and Red podcast. And as always, we thank you for listening to us. Uh, we really appreciate it. And then, as always, uh, we would like to ask you to subscribe uh, to us on whatever format you listen to, whether it be on podcast or on our YouTube channel. Um, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We are on Linktree slash Green and Red Podcast. And we now also have postcards. And if you have a coffee house or a library or a bookstore, or someplace like that in your area that might be uh, a great spot to put some of these, just ask us and we will send them to you free of charge to spread the word about the Green and Red Podcast. And you can email us at greenredpodcast at gmail to get uh, a, a packet of your, of your postcards. Uh, and then if you really like us, you can uh, donate. And, you know, we, we are very happy to get the donation and have the small base of small donors that we have. Uh, and so you can either become a patron at patreon.com backslash green red podcast, or you can make a one-time donation at green and red podcast.org and just hit that support button. It's also on the postcards. Uh, and so, uh, you know, 
Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Misunderstood.